That's Debatable is sponsored by MB&G. MB&G are specialists in the esoteric world of vehicle and furniture warranty insurance, delivering quite marvellous customer service, prompt claims payment, and a highly developed understanding of how to deliver these products in a way that is both compliant with the regulations and attractive to customers. and welcome to That's Debatable, the weekly news podcast of the Free Speech Union. Hello, Ben. Happy Monday to you. It's a suicide Monday, I think. The first Monday of the first full working week of a new year. But I hope you're in good spirits. I, I'm in very good spirits. I mean, while that, that may be true, um, I, I think at the Free Speech Union this week, uh, we are feeling pretty triumphant, aren't we? Are. we? Uh, for reasons you may have seen in the papers over the weekend. Um, and uh, that's what we'll go on to talk about in a moment, the case of uh, Carl Borgenil, uh, our biggest victory to date. So uh, so good, very, very good spirits, very good spirits today, I think, uh, <laughs> the Free Speech Union. We've all been watching it over the weekend, haven't we, that particular case. But as you say, we'll come to it in a minute because we did want briefly just to introduce ourselves again. We introduced ourselves last week because it was a new calendar year, 2024. And but we thought we would also introduce ourselves because we're expecting we might get a number of new listeners uh, imminently because we are now broadcasting over the Apple airwaves as well as the other Spotify, Podbean and other podcast uh, distribution um, methods we are now going to be over the Apple Airways. So that's very exciting. Um, but yeah, so I am Tom Harris. I'm Director of Data and Impact at the Free Speech Union, and I help to curate uh, our particularly our casework data, make sure it's usable, obviously anonymized. We don't release any confidential information about any of our members or about any of our cases. But what we can do is we can block it all up and slice it in a way that when Toby goes on to the TV or even when you go onto the TV, Ben, we can make sure we have the facts and figures at our fingertips to, to make sure that the story we have to tell is as, as compelling as possible. And it also helps us to manage our resources, work out uh, what sorts of cases, what sorts of research we need to do in what we're going through, which is, for all, to all intents and purposes, a free speech war, a free expression war. Um, so that's what I do at the Free Speech Union. What, what about you, Ben? Tom, Tom is, is basically like a sort of benign eye of Sauron, aren't you, Tom? You, you, <coughs> you see and know everything there is to know about the free speech culture war with your, your massive database <laughs> uh, that, that we often talk about. Um, well, I am, well, last week I introduced myself as Dr. Benjamin Jones, which is correct, but, but Tom mm. chastised me. Uh, for bragging. So should I just say Benjamin James this time? Um, and I'm the director of... No, you, should, you, should, you, are, you are a doctor, Ben, and you should be proud of it. I wasn't, I was, all I was trying to, uh, to, to uh, make the point was to needle you a bit. About uh, well, the fact no, you're no, obviously it's a right. philosophical doctor rather than a medical doctor. But, uh, you're, 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 you're a, a doctor is a doctor. A doctor is a doctor. And those, uh, those long hours earning us during the pandemic with a newborn baby at home. Yes, go on then. All right, Dr. Benjamin James it is. So I'm the Director of Case Operations and Outreach, um, and my job basically uh, is to help people call up and say something like, I've just been sacked, or I'm about to be sacked, or uh, my university just suspended me because of something I said, and I really need somebody to help. So uh, 
I or one of my colleagues in the case team uh, will be the first person that you speak to at the Free Speech Union if you need our assistance. Um, and uh, sometimes as we're about to go and talk about uh, those cases, then get referred to our legal team. Um, and if they go all the way, as Carl's case did, um, well, you know, I'm just chomping at the bit to get into that, Tom. I can sense it. I can sense yeah. The one thing I was going to say, though, uh, yes, I see mm. a lot of stuff because of where I am uh, on our on our case management system. But I do also notice you you have a fantastic sort of bedside manner for when people first come to us when they need that reassurance uh, of how to navigate through a situation. There's no one like Ben, I think. I mean, and our, all our colleagues are fantastic, but um, you're always a, a very friendly voice, I think, for people who are new to the Free Speech Union. But let's let's launch in. Do you want to go over the Carl Borg Neil case? Yeah. Let's go in. I mean, I, actually, just on that point about, um, about you know, sort of bedside manner of people contacting us for the first time, as, as Carl did, you know, usually someone's contacting us uh, at one of, one of the lowest moments of their life, um, certainly one of the most stressful moments of their life. Um, and, uh, you know, if you're, in, if you're in the situation where you're, say, in your 50s or your early 60s, uh, well, any stage of life, but let's just say, uh, for example, and you find you can't pay the mortgage, you've lost your job, um, it, perhaps it's too late in life to retrain or there's no prospects of you being able to find work for whatever reason. Um, <clears throat> you know, you're really, really in the doldrums. You're really potentially stuffed. Um, and so I had a conversation like that with Carl almost a year ago. Um, I think it was back in March 2023 uh, when he and I first spoke. Um, and he had been a manager at Lloyds Bank for 27 years, uh, completely unblemished service record, as of course you you would have if you'd been such a valued and long-standing colleague that there's no other way you, you'd get to that position, I suppose. Um, and he had been sacked because he'd gone to an online training session, <clears throat> race education for line managers. This session was held in uh, summer 2021, so it was uh, it was online. Um, and there were about 100 of his colleagues who were other senior uh, managers at Lloyd's attending this call. And we should probably, <clears throat> excuse me, we should probably start with the, uh, the line used right at the start of the session by the trainer. Um, and this is a bit of a, a sort of dark running joke we have on this podcast where somebody says something like, and this is a direct quote, when we talk about race, people often worry about saying the wrong thing. Please understand that today is your opportunity to practice, learn, and be clumsy. The goal is to start talking. So please speak freely and forgive yourself and others when being clumsy today. And the dark joke that we have... <clears throat> is guess what happened next? Well, I've given away that part already. Carl got fired. Um, Tom, do you want, what, what did he say? So, yeah, I mean, that I noticed just to pick up on that point, Ben, when uh, I was watching Toby over the weekend on one of his interviews, he said, um, when people say that, when people say this is a place to be clumsy, this is a safe space, be on your guard. Be on your guard because they mean the opposite of uh, those lovely words, those lovely safe sounding words. Oh, I can say what I want. I'm, I'm fine. That's that's the moment when the guard should go up. Anyhow, 
what happened in this training is that uh, Carl was very engaged in it and really wanted to understand how better to uh, to navigate through issues of race in the workplace. And as the conversation was going on and the training was going on, the issue, he, he came up with a question. And he said, in, in essence, you know, what happens in the workplace if I'm working with a team of people of different ethnic backgrounds and one uh, within two people from the same ethnic background, say two black people, between them are having a conversation and use a uh, a pejorative term or, or, or an epithet which uh, uh, between them, which you know in any other circumstances in the office would definitely not be acceptable. Uh, should I reprimand them? And the trainer turned round and said, I don't know what you're talking about, you know, looked confused and said, don't, Carl, what are, you, what are you talking about? You know, give me an example. And then Carl said, well, for example, if there were two black employees having a conversation and between them, they, they referenced the N-word, um, would that be acceptable? The one problem, and this obviously was a fairly major problem, is that Carl actually used the whole um, word when he was when he was. Uh, relaying that question immediately realized oops no i don't mean shouldn't have said that sorry um but he in a moment of sort of absent-mindedness and that's an important point we can come back to uh it came out and uh all hell broke out the the trainer uh immediately sort of shut him down so that he couldn't say anything more said you need to stay quiet for the rest of the training um, and then she kind of um, brought it to a, to a fairly early close. Um, uh, but obviously, more more happened after that, didn't it, Ben? Do you want to pick up on the story as to what what happened next? Because it's quite it's quite yeah. like we're, we're turning it into chapters here, aren't we? But I think it's such a there's so it's such an expansive story. It's so many different elements to it. It's worth kind of ch- chunking it up. I think the trainer really berated Carl for what he said and um, according to you know various witnesses that, that have spoken about this afterwards someone said I was shocked by the manner and tone used by one presenter to a colleague somebody said after saying at the beginning this would be a safe environment and we may make mistakes she launched into a vitriolic attack I believe he was trying to ask a valid question to aid understanding. So there's no suggestion, and this is something that the Employment Tribunal uh, decided as well, there's no suggestion that he was trying to sort of sneak this word in to express his his secret racist views or to unsettle people um, or or anything like that. He was genuinely engaged with this session. Um, This question occurred to him because he was engaged with the session and with its content. Um, So after this whole... Uh, episode he logged out of the call and then the trainer of this course uh, said that she was so offended by the use of the n-word even in this hypothetical context even after he tried to apologize for it immediately uh, she said she was too sick to work and took five days off uh, at which point she then made a complaint to lloyd's bank which began the uh, the uh, disciplinary process with which so many of our members have become so needlessly uh, familiar with. Um, and as a result of that investigation, the accusation of racism made against Carl and the disciplinary process, he was sacked after 27 years for gross misconduct. And 
I, I cannot imagine any way in which somebody could recover from that. Um, filling in a gap on your CV of a few months is difficult. Filling in a gap on your CV of nearly three decades, uh, having been sacked supposedly for racism, is is completely impossible. So it wasn't just that he'd lost his job. He he also had no prospect, I think, of, of finding work either. Well, didn't Carl say, Ben, uh, specifically, mm. I watched his interview where he said that uh, Lloyd's banking group actually wrote to the Financial Conduct Authority or to the Ombudsman, it's not quite clear which, about the case, which would have meant, you know, you never quite know what those, where those letters get filed away at the regulator or at the Ombudsman. You don't know what happens to them. But I think Carl quite rightly said, you know, if they're going to write to the, the regulator, I can't hold or it's going to be extraordinarily tricky for me to hold a regulated position in any future career that I do stitch together again. So it was not just getting fired, it was then sort of a nail in the coffin by this letter going out to the external parties, which really does put a blot on your copybook and does yeah. make it, in certainly in financial services, all the more difficult to, to build anything, put anything, stitch anything back together again. But sorry, you, you carry on then. No, that, no, I think that's 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 worth uh, that's worth expanding on. They'd really salted the earth, um, and anyway, this was the this was the point at which uh, Carl contacted the Free Speech Union, and he and I first spoke, and very quickly um, I grasped this this story uh, and uh, how badly Carl had been treated. So it went over to our, our legal team. Um, and um, our colleague, uh, Caroline Segui, our, our legal counsel. Um, and as a result of, uh, uh, of all of this, we uh, instructed, or rather uh, Carl instructed, Emma Hamlet at Doyle Clayton, which is a solicitor's firm that specialises in employment law. Um, and we made the offer that we would cover all of Carl's legal expenses on the understanding that we would get the money back uh, if he won the case, which, of course, he has done in, in triumphant fashion um but and this is something that i know carl has been speaking about in the last few days um since this has hit the news that of course if you're in a position where you're having to pay legal fees of 100 pounds or anything in that region of course that's far beyond the means of of most people uh it's also beyond the means of a lot of people even working in uh, in finance and banking uh, it's, a, it's a huge sum of money um but because the Free Speech Union and its members have built what we have, we're able to say, yeah, okay, we'll we'll take the risk on your behalf because we think you're going to win and we know you, you can't stump up this cash. Um, and it went to the Employment Tribunal. It, it, it was a pretty long-running uh, contest as these, as these things are. You know, it's been a year of his life um, that he's, he's been dealing with this. But the end result is fantastic. It's absolutely yeah. astonishing. Um, it's uh, go on, Tom. You you go. You give us the numbers. Well, yeah, I, <laughs> the numbers. Um, I'll come to in a second, actually. But the the interesting thing was he had um, tried to represent himself. Was doing a really good job actually before picking up the phone to us. Um, but as you say, even for someone who's robust, resilient, and even with someone with relative, you know, having worked in finance, not necessarily got a big war chest, it's it's beyond one's emotional capability, it's beyond one's one's experience, sort of the law that one's required to understand. And of course, the financial cloud on the horizon 
is huge and it's it just gets bigger and bigger the further you go down this process but when the uh when the num when we look at the numbers uh, and it it does depend how you add them up but the um the damages is 500,000 pounds half a million pounds but lloyd's banking group is dealing with a bill that well may well be close to a million because of its legal costs, of its tax, and other additional elements. So this is a huge deal. And I think it is, our, by some stretch, our largest, uh, in financial terms, our largest win. Um, now, we, we, I think it's fair to say, this is me being a little bit of an actuary, always wanting to throw the caveats in there. I think it's fair to say that the reason we underwrote this particular um, case, Carl's case, is because we looked at it and we looked at the merits of it. And we spoke to external lawyers and they looked at the merits of it. And we thought, yeah, this is this is so clearly a case of injustice. We have to fight it. And it's a it's such a fundamental uh, area of freedom of expression as well and free speech. We, this is what we are about. This is our bread and butter. So, you know, there's no, we never, we can, we can never, like anyone can, we can never provide a, a guarantee that we would do the same in every situation. But for this, for Carl and his circumstances, we were able to make that promise. And it, it came through. We will get our money back. Um, Doyle's Clayton will get their legal fees paid and there'll be money left over for Carl to, to stitch his life back together again. So it's it's win, win, win on all sides, I think. There's a couple of other points that are worth noting. Um, this one is crucial to the case. Uh, it's the fact that Carl is dyslexic. Now, I wasn't aware of this, um, but have learned during this process that one of the um, aspects of dyslexia that some dyslexic people have is uh, to do with tripping over your words or expressing yourself inarticulately uh, or uh, sort of blurting something out before you've you've quite thought of the sentence completely in your mind. Um, and this is one of the crucial parts of his case is because because Carl is dyslexic, he used the N-word in full and immediately regretted it and uh, and said that, uh, you know, he didn't mean to use it. It's not something he wanted or, or should have said. Um, and so the employment tribe, this is part of the reason why the costs, uh, the, the damages are so high. Um, and there was no, this, this wasn't taken into account when Lloyd was, was deciding how to handle the, the case and what to do uh, with Carl. And obviously that process then ended in him, him being dismissed. So that's a crucial part of it. Um, and the other thing I'd just like to say about Carl himself is that not only was he engaged with this training uh, in the spirit of wanting to make sure that uh, Lloyd's was uh, an inclusive and tolerant place for people to work, but he was also, um, he'd recently joined a mentoring scheme for uh, young colleagues from ethnic minority backgrounds and had, I think, three people that he was mentoring as well. So um, this case isn't about whether you can go to work and use the N-word. Um, it, it's not about letting people express racist views. It's not about people who've got uh, secretly held racist views that they want to sort of smuggle into day-to-day -day conversation at the workplace. It's not about any of that. Um, it, it's not that at all. It's about a very well-respected and well-liked manager who is dyslexic, who expressed himself inarticulately on one occasion and was dismissed for it. That's what it's about. 
Yeah. And another element that is so fascinating in this is, and that's, uh, we're, we're, we're obviously um, recording at around about the same time as the post office. Um, famously, the post office documentary yeah. has been going out on ITV and has really captured the imagination of the country. A lot of the elements of this story with Carl Borch-Neal are very similar. They're not similar. They're, it's a very different story, indeed. But kind of the, the human element and the the yeah the injustice of it. But if you look at the response of Lloyd's throughout, they were not going to kind of um, even think about um, you know sort of stepping back, stepping back and thinking about what they'd done straight after the judgment in August 2023. Uh, the statement from Lloyd's Bank was as follows. We have a zero tolerance, tolerance policy on racist language and are considering appealing the judgment made. And thus, even after the judgment, the first judgment of the tribunal, uh, it, was, it was clear that Lloyd's Bank were not getting the memo. They weren't seeing the problem of firing someone for one mistake in one situation as a complete one-off. And in fact, what's really interesting is that the tribunal has now ordered that Lloyd's circulate the judgment to the bank's British board and that they be asked to read and digest it. And it further warned Lloyd's not to make comments to the press which give a wholly misleading impression. So this this utter inability on the side of Lloyd as the employer to see this problem and 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 or not to see what the employment tribunal has seen, which is the the two sides to this and the injustice that has been done to Carl Borch Neal. Um, it's the sort of it's a it's quite a sort of defense. It's a very defensive, slightly panicked response along the lines of. We don't want to be seen in any way to be close to something that's against, you know, um, uh, race and race issues and our race action plan that we've signed up to and the race education training that we're giving our employees. Um, so, again, this response of Lloyd's Banking Group itself is a really interesting element of the whole story, I think. And it's worth also um, <clears throat> some of the uh, some of the points that uh, the employment tribunal made. I think it's worth repeating. So it's a unanimous decision, and they really laid into the arguments that had been put forward by Lloyd. So one of the points that Lloyd's tried to make was that, uh, and I'll quote this directly: because of the absence of any deeper acceptance as to why the use of the word was so inappropriate. Uh, end quote. There was basically no other choice. Um, but to but to fire him, and then the panel have the tribunal panel have responded and said, "Well, he told the hearing manager, that's Carl, that he understood in hindsight that the trainer would be upset. He said a friend had told him use of the word was inappropriate, and I get that. He said he understood his contact had fallen below expectations, and the tribunal said one wonders what was expected of him." But he tried to apologise immediately. He'd reflected on it. He accepted he shouldn't have said it. There was no attempt by him to say, uh, oh, yeah, that's the sort of language that should be allowed in the workplace. Yeah, that's fine. Uh, that wasn't his perspective at all. Um, and so the tribunal have said that this is a very unusual and particular uh, case. Uh, but the end result of it is that no reasonable employer would have dismissed Carl. And so hence the case has, has gone the way it has in his favour. Um, so I, a, a real triumph for him for uh, 
Free Speech Union and uh, to all of the members and donors and supporters and people who've helped us get to the point where we can say to somebody, yes, we'll take this risk for you because we think you're going to win. And it's been really interesting as well to over the weekend. So we're recording on Monday and the news broke, I think, on Friday afternoon, Friday evening. Yeah. And um, I've obviously, like most of us at the Free Speech, we've been looking at the, the article appeared in the Telegraph. It's been the Daily Mail. It's been on TV. And Free Speech Nation yesterday, Toby was on that. It's been to look at the comments underneath the articles and the comments uh, from the public. And it's really hit a nerve with, with people who, who immediately see uh, Carl's perspective on this and have immediately realized that um, hopefully, and there's a little bit of hope in the comments and the response, I think, that is this, is this a new dawn? Is this a tipping point? Um, interestingly, I, I saw when Toby was being interviewed by Andrew Doyle yesterday, Andrew asked him that question, uh, but in a broader context of um, with all that's happening in this year, with all that's happening with the uh, election coming up, uh, does Toby feel that we're winning the, the free speech uh, war in any way? And, and Toby said, look, there are a lot of glimmers here, things like the Carl Borge Neal case, things like the higher education uh, Freedom of Speech Act uh, and other things, but the the problem is that these could be swept away. And you've made this point before, Ben. These these advantages, these gains that we've made, could be swept away by a single piece of legislation brought in by a new administration. A sort of, uh, particularly, I think the concern would be a um, a a, a, a majority. A clear majority uh, Labour government would potentially do things like the Scottish hate bill uh, crime in England, and that I think is is our concern that um, we could quite quickly have some of these wins swept away. So we've all got to stay watch in our watchtowers, alert, awake, ready for the next battle, ready for the next skirmish, because this is going to be a really interesting year. And, uh, yeah, it doesn't take a lot to sweep away some of these things that we have uh, have won. So if somebody says to you at work, this is a space where you can say anything you like and we'll be forgiving and tolerant, think of Mao and the 100 Flowers Bloom campaign and uh, be on your guard, I think, is the uh, final piece of advice uh, I'd give in respect to this case. Yes, uh, guard yeah. up. Yeah. Guard up. Right. Well... Oh. Very interesting case. Yeah. yeah, it's certainly been fantastic news for us. We're going to move on. Um, <clears throat> and Tom, we want to talk now about uh, Camden Council, don't we? And uh, this extraordinary We story. do. We do. And it's been another thing I noticed over the weekend, Ben, was quite a few people from the Free Speech Union have been, uh, have been writing away, sort of getting their pens out, dipping them in ink and... Uh, and, and creating articles. I saw that obviously Toby, I think, was in spiked. I noticed that Jan McVerish, uh, our events director, was in spiked uh, over the weekend as well on a non free, free expression related article. Um, but another member of our, uh, of our team, our, our social media guru, officer, I prefer the word guru, uh, Freddie, At Freddie Attenborough, he wrote a piece over the weekend in the Critic magazine entitled, Are You Now or Have You Ever Been a Gender-Critical Feminist? And making reference, as you say, Ben, to a local council to Camden, Labour-run local authority, which has begun asking businesses, generally suppliers to the council, 
asking those businesses to demonstrate their commitment to LGBTQ plus equality before procuring them. So yeah, it is a very McCarthyist type question. Are you or have you ever been a gender critical feminist? And in that article, Freddie quite rightly says, look, this could be a very um, reasonable question to ask in the sense of, do you believe in the, the basic tenets of social justice, that you treat everyone equally uh, and that you don't discriminate against people, how we would have understood it you know, at the end of the 90s, for example. But of course, and Freddie makes this point, um, sort of hovering in the background, especially with Camden Council, is the Stonewall Workplace Equality Index. The council first submitted to that index back in 2019 and is quite keen to point out on regular occasions um, that they are excited to be in that index. They, they, they went into it with the support of colleagues in what is their rainbow network. And they've reached number 47 in Stonewall's progressive league table. Uh, and, and the Camden Council says that they're top out of all local authority entrants, something to be really proud of. So with all that in the background, when they're asking this question of potential suppliers, what's their commitment to LGBTQ plus equality? We do know that that is, in essence, going to be a version of the title of Freddie's article. Are you or have you ever been a, a gender-critical feminist? And one thing I thought as well that, that jumped out of, of Freddie's um, article, um, he quotes uh, the best value statutory guidance for local councils. Uh, that guidance states the following. Authorities should avoid gold plating the Equality Act 2010 and should not impose contractual requirements on private and voluntary sector contractors over and above the obligations in that act. They should remove unnecessary paperwork and obstacles to contract compliance. So, you know, you've got that guidance. Well, if if we now have, in effect, through the Stonewall involvement with Stonewall, Camden Council asking this question of all people who would supply services, then I think there is, uh, there is very, very a serious set of questions that need to be asked. You know, are you gold-plating? and reinterpreting the Equality Act in the way that we have seen happen in the NHS, in the way that we have seen happen in so many other places. And so, you know, a few things I take away from this, one of the main ones is, oh no, head and hands again. Is this still happening? Is this still <laughs> the first sort of question that's being asked by a council of an external party? That is um, just in you know this stage you know 2024 where we think we might be winning the battle is a bit depressing you have to wonder as well how widespread uh policies procurement policies like this might be um and given the completely shambolic nature of local government in england i mean i've lost track of how many councils have, have collapsed into bankruptcy or or are teetering on the brink of it um if this is what local government is is thinking about uh, it doesn't fill uh fill you with confidence does it um, but go and check out Freddie's piece in the, in the Critic. It, it's well worth reading. And the other point on this that's worth mentioning is that we are, of course, um, very interested in hearing from you if you or somebody you know um, had tried to uh, tender for a contract with, uh, tried to get a contract with Camden Council and was rejected. Um, it may well be that we could offer you assistance as well. Uh, so do get in touch. Or likewise, if you've heard of a similar policy uh, or similar issues from another local authority, I think we'd be very interested in hearing about about that as well. So do you give us a ring or, or email us if you're aware of anything like that. 
Another point I'd make, which is not a depressing point, quite the reverse, is it when these policies are coming out, when we're hearing about these sorts of things from, from Camden Council and similar, we do now have our ducks in a row. There is there is artillery now on the battlefield. There are tanks on our side. We've been there, done that. We've got groups like Sex Matters. We've got groups like the LGB Alliance. We've got groups like Let Women Speak. These have now come of age, I think, and become emboldened to speak things that even 24 months ago, 12 months ago, it was not so easy to say. And as we've got that infrastructure in place, I am a lot more hopeful that we can push back on it. I don't think it's going to to, to mean it is still going to be a whack-a-mole experience. We're still going to be whacking down this policy and seeing maybe two or three sort of jump up again because that's just the environment we're in. But we do have artillery now on our side. And I think... Uh, we shouldn't underestimate the power of that and the and the uh, and the eloquence with which the the voices in that space speak is is quite overwhelming. It's very difficult to come back to them. Um, you know, some some of the people, uh, you know, like Kathleen Stark and others, who 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 argue this so well, so clearly, and uh, crisply. Uh, so I think there is there is reason for hope there that we can push back and make a difference. We won't we won't we will still see them popping up again. I think. We, we have to say that's going to happen um, at this stage of the battle. But we have a lot of resources on our side. There is uh, there's strength in numbers as well. You know, going, going back to Carl's case and all of the situations like that where we, we've helped the more than 2,000 cases we've been involved in, again, at the risk of repeating myself, it's only possible because thousands of people have flocked to our banner um, and have supported the Free Speech Union. So um, particularly if this is the first time listening to the podcast or if you've just heard of us uh, as a result of the coverage about Carl's case over the last few days. And we often find that there'll, there'll be a big case in the papers and we'll have a, a flood of, of new members and correspondents and um, people saying, oh, I've not heard of you before, but I have a kind of similar situation. Could you help me? Um, you know, all, all of that work can be done um, because of our members and, and supporters. Um, so thank you for your support. If you've not signed up as a member, uh, please go to our website and uh, have a look. And even if it's not for you, even if you don't think you'll need assistance like that, uh, your membership does mean that we can say to people like Carl when they contact us at their lowest ebb, yes, we can help you. And in that vein, of course, and one of the benefits of membership is getting access where you get the news every week in our newsletter, uh, in Toby's inimitable style and Freddie's inimitable style. He helps to write the weekly newsletter uh, so you can keep abreast of everything that's happening. Uh, but we also have some fantastic events that we spoke about last week, our Christmas events, but upcoming. Uh, we also, on Saturday the 3rd of February, um, the FSU, we're going to be at the Anthony Burgess Foundation uh, for a night of discussion followed by some live music. And Toby Young will be joined by Sean Corby, and Denise Farmy, two other courageous FSU members in the same category as Carl Borch Neal. Uh, different situations, obviously, every, every situation is unique, but same levels of courage and perseverance and resilience. 
they'll be there um, to to speak to Toby. And Sean's also a professional musician, so um, he'll be playing from his jazz repertoire. So there's a bit of culture there al- already. Um, but tickets are available. Um, but I think you have to be a member for that. So do sign up and, and and get some tickets. Maybe not actually. Just looking at it right now. But in any case, always sign up to be a member. Of course, um, that's a great event that's coming up. And there's also our event in Northern Ireland just before that on the 26th of January, our first time in Belfast. Uh, and that is, as I say, it's coming up coming up really quickly. And that has a panel of speakers that includes, well, it, a panel of speakers that is Toby Young, Andrew Doyle, Stella O'Malley, David Quinn, Ella Whelan, and Jeffrey Dudgeon. And they'll be discussing the state of free speech in Northern Ireland at the Titanic Hotel. But hopefully the evening won't end the way the Titanic ended. I'm sure it won't. Um, but I think tickets are actually going quite fast for that. It's our first time in Northern Ireland. So, of course, that's a first opportunity for many of our Northern Ireland friends and supporters to come and see us in person uh, in Northern Ireland. So, um, yeah, that's going to be a great evening. And, again, uh, tickets are uh, available. Um, there's a link in our, in our newsletters um, that people can just click on and, and get tickets from that but uh, do you have anything to add um over and above that um ben how many times do you think these staff at the titanic hotel have heard those sorts of jokes tom and do you think they go down well <laughs> there was always room on that door leo <laughs> <laughs> there was room on that door i know i think um i think i would i wouldn't get very far ben i think my titanic jokes would probably have me thrown out on my ear before our panel even convenes. <laughs> there's, uh, there's a terrible danger now that we're going to, uh, I was about to say, sink into dad jokes, which uh, <laughs> would have been unfortunate. We don't want to hit that words. iceberg. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but before our, our new listeners and remaining old listeners um, abandon ship. Gosh, it's impossible to speak. I can see the Carpathia steaming yeah, our way. Yeah, we're going to be in, okay. It's impossible to speak without using nautical metaphors, isn't it? It really is. We will stop and leave it there, I think, and say uh, <laughs> goodbye and thank you for your support and thank you for listening. Bye-bye. And have a great week and speak to you next week. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.